0: Thank you, Robbie and Carolyn and Catherine, for leading us in worship today. Uh, Dan Baker is with about 81 of our students on a choir tour. They're in Colorado Springs. A group of 81 folks have gone on that trip. So you pray for them, their safety, and their ministry uh, while they're away. Turn to Amos chapter 9. This is the end of our series from the Minor Prophet. And I know some of you are really glad. Well, today is a big day for you. Uh, Turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos is tough stuff. He calls it like he sees it, and we're going to let him call it like he sees it again today. Amos chapter 9. Before we go to Amos chapter 9, I want to read an email I received. I did not receive permission to share it, so I will not use the person's name, but it's from a, a dad who volunteered in Bible school. We had a lot of folks take vacation and help us in Bible school this week. He writes, what a week it has been. The blessing that I've received are far greater than I could explain. The energy that is generated from God through over a thousand young children is a blessing to watch, yet even a a larger blessing to be a part of. The lessons these children have learned will be lifelong for many, and if not life-changing. The lessons that I learned this week will be life-changing as well. That lesson is not only that First Baptist Church is my church home, it is a family, a family that I can volunteer my time to, a family that has spirit and life and love for God. Thank you for the opportunity to serve and to be a servant this week. My only regret this week is why have I not stepped out of the boat before And regret for all those who are still in the boat. Thank you to this one and all the volunteers. With 1,100 kids, you can imagine all the adults that it takes. And perhaps you're looking for that mission opportunity. And I'm telling you, it's tremendous to be in this room full of children. It's the most children I have ever seen in this room. Perhaps the most children who have ever been in this room We're in this room this week singing praises to God. And you think about next week as you're planning your vacation weeks to to help us with Vacation Bible School. Well, certain judgment and certain hope. Amos chapter 9. Is there any place that you can really hide? Perhaps once upon a time there was a place that we might be able to go undetected. A place where we could take cover. A place where our Whereabouts would be unknown. But I'm not sure those places exist anymore. It seems as if we live in a day and a time when there is a video camera mounted in every hallway and in every doorway. In fact, I used to be a member of a health club here in town that had video cameras of all places and the men's locker rooms. You would take a shower and come out and change, and the video cameras were aimed on you at the whole time. I'm not sure who had the job of monitoring those cameras, but I bet they had to pay them pretty well to sit and watch that all day long. But those surveillance cameras are nothing compared to what police have now. Taking cover doesn't help anymore because there's helicopters, police helicopters are equipped with enormous candle power. One police department boasts that their McDonnell Douglas is equipped with 30 million candle power night sun S616 searchlight that can illuminate an entire city block with the flip of a switch. In fact, one police department in Canada boasts that now that they have their chopper, that despite the fact they have 15 or 20 calls for the chopper every single night, that since they've had the chopper in the air, not one single suspect has escaped. At 500 feet away, the infrared cameras in Canada pick up the thief's footprints. They glow like heat sources in the snow. In fact, they say when even the police pooch loses his scent, the infrared camera keeps following the felon. The Canadian chopper has an average response time of 90 seconds. It takes the average police car six minutes to arrive to the scene. In fact, they say when they are detecting the thief and the folks on the ground can't follow, it's not unusual for the flight crew to say to the officer on the ground, He's five five feet to the left in front of you. Reach out and touch someone. You have your suspect. There is absolutely nowhere to hide these days. From crime choppers on patrol, they will get you. So it is in big cities. But it's not just the helicopters anymore. Modern phones and laptops and tablets They all have built-in location tracking that pings a combination of GPS, Wi-Fi, and mobile networks to determine the device's position. In fact, even when you switch off your location tracking device from pinging the GPS satellites, you're still connected to a cellular network or Wi-Fi that is transmitting your coordinates to a third party all the time your phone is in your pocket. For example, there was one criminal in the big city who stole a cell phone. Well, the police followed him all the way back to his housing complex, and they were waiting on him when he got there. Another fellow stole a car. Didn't know the well, the the phone was still in the car, so they followed the car all over town until they were able to apprehend him. In fact i've gotten intimidated by my own iphone lately i don't know if there's a button i've turned on but it tells me not only where i am it tells me where i'm going it's really none of my iphone's business where i'm going i didn't ask it where i was going in fact this wednesday morning i got in the car and it said 12 minutes to bsa hospital well how did my iphone know on a Wednesday morning that my next stop was BSA Hospital. I haven't programmed that in. That's not on my calendar. Well, normally on Wednesday mornings, my first stop for hospital visits is BSA Hospital. I am so happy. I was headed to Bible school this Wednesday morning. And so I said, Siri, you don't know everything you think you know. (laughs) I am not going to the hospital. I love it when she's wrong every single time. Well, Everyone knows where you are these days. It is not just GPS. Did you know now now they're using facial recognition? Picture a crowded street. A man is believed to have committed a violent crime. To find him, they feed a photograph of him into a video surveillance network powered by artificial intelligence. A camera, one of thousands on this big city street like are already in Europe. This is our future is instantly analyzing all the faces of every person who comes down the street. Now you can change your clothes, but you can't change your face. And all of a sudden the logarithm gives an alert that a face has been detected that matches up with the criminal's face and the police are directed to the exact location of the criminal based upon face recognition. Well, is there any place you can hide, any place you can escape, hardly anymore. And this was a condition of ancient Israel. They were trying to hide from the wrath of an all-searching eye of God. When we come to Amos chapter 9, we're reminded that the minor prophet is outlined with chapters 1 through 6 being the words of Amos, and chapters 7 through 9 being the visions of Amos. Last week, we looked at the first three visions, the visions of the locusts devouring the crops, and the vision of the fire falling down from heaven, the vision of the plumb line to which ancient Israel did not measure up, and now we move on to the fifth vision. And in this vision, Amos seems to move to the side of the stage and Yahweh, or God, takes center stage. In verses 1 through 8, we have certain judgment on ancient Israel. Let's look at the first four verses of chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, From there shall I my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide at the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. No hiding place from the wrathful God for ancient Israel. You can run, God says to Amos, but you cannot hide. The vision begins with Amos seeing the Lord standing beside an altar, probably the altar at the Bethel shrine, because Amos has spoken against the shrine before and its ritualistic religion. The altar was a place where God was to receive the offerings of his people, but God rejects their offering, and the first word out of Yahweh's mouth is a hard word smite, smite, God says. Well, the sanctuary which had been used for Israel's sanctimonious services would be completely destroyed. The temple would tumble like a house of cards. The people, in fact, will suffer. No one will escape, and God will slay them, even by the swords of another nation. This kind of reminds me of the inverse of, of a psalm, Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, there is no place that he could go away from the love and protection of God. Compare no way to hide from the wrath of God in Amos 9 with Psalm 139. Listen as I read. The psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even your hand will lead me. Your right hand will guide me. Psalm is saying, there is no place that I can go away from the love of God, the protection of God. In fact, Amos uses exactly the same imagery Amos says, it doesn't matter if I go to the limits of the universe, verse 2. He says, I can go to the depths of the grave. I can go to Sheol. Now, the psalmist said that. And if I go to Sheol, oh, God, you'll meet me there. Or maybe I, I try to ascend to the heavens, just like the psalmist said. If I go to the heights of the heavens to try to escape you, oh, no, God, you, an angry God, are there, too. Maybe it's not the limits of the universe. Maybe it's the limits of the earth. Notice he says, if I go to the highest point of the summit of Mount Carmel, you'll get me there. Or or God says, if you try to hide in the deepest depths of the sea, I will send the serpent to bite you in the sea. There is no limit to the pursuit of God. I also contrast with Paul who says that neither heights nor depths Nothing alive, nothing dead can keep us from the love of God. Well, he says there's no place at all to hide. Do you know the name Jonathan Edwards? He was one of the great intellects in all of American history. I want to read a little portion of a sermon he preached about the wrath of God. He preached this sermon in 1741. So you're hearing a portion of a very old sermon, 1741 preached uh, in Connecticut. Listen to the words uh, of Jonathan Edwards. And it, they said he wasn't a very dynamic speaker, that he had a monotone voice and he read, and he didn't even move his head. He moved the paper back and forth as he read. but. When you hear how powerful his words are, it didn't matter how he said it. It shook the building. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he's now doing and what he intends to do. The greater part of those who heretofore have lived under the same means of grace are now dead and undoubtedly gone to hell. And it was not because they were not as wise as those who are alive now. It is not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. He said, the wrath of God is like a black cloud that hangs directly over your head, full of dreadful storm and a big thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The wrath of God is like the great waters that are dammed for the present, and they increase more and more, and they rise higher and higher till an outlet is given, and the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty its course when it once is let loose. The wrath of God, he said, is like a bow that is bent the arrow is aimed at our heart already, ready to sting. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains a bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation of all that keeps the arrow from one moment being drunk with your blood. God holds you over the pit of hell like one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. He holds his wrath. It burns like fire. He looks upon you as unworthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Wow, tough words, huh? But he says, it is the mercy of God that keeps you from hell. O sinner, concludes the old preacher, consider the danger you're in. It is a great furnace of wrath, wide and bottomless pit. Edwards sound a lot like Amos when he says to ancient Israel, God's wrath is coming. Yahweh says, smite them all. Strong, strong words from Amos. Well, Ancient Israel had made the mistake, verse 7, of thinking that their covenantal status with God was a privilege when in fact it was a responsibility. In fact, in verse 7, look at it. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? O sons of Israel, declares the Lord, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful nation, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Hard, hard words. He pointed to the most redemptive act in all of the Old Testament, the exodus from slavery in Egypt. And he says, Well, other nations have had an exodus as well. Don't think you'll be treated any differently because you have not kept my word. So this first section of Amos is certain judgment, the wrath of God against those, remember, in this community were abusing the poor. They were bribing the judges. They were living in injustice. They were trampling the poor to make a profit. And God says, my wrath will flow against you. The greatest word in the book of Amos comes in verse 8b. Would you look at 8b? Nevertheless. That's the word of mercy. That's the word of hope. I'm going to judge those who are abusing the poor, those who are breaking my commandments. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. At those first eight verses, the beginning of verse 8 are words of wrath. The last verses of the end of Amos are words of grace and hope. What seemed like total destruction is now not total destruction. There will be a remnant that is saved. There will be a portion of the people of God who will not be involved in the disastrous judgment of God. The poor, the needed, the oppressed, they will be redeemed. In fact, he goes on with the image. Look at verse 9. For behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations as a grain is shaken in the sea that the kernel will not fall to the ground. Well, it will be sifted, this these people of ancient Israel, and the kernel, the folks that, who have had a heart for God, they will be spared, they will be redeemed, they will receive the mercy of God, and the chaff, not the wheat, but the chaff, it will fall into the fire of God. In verses 11 through 12, he says, I, I will rise up the fallen booth of David. That David was supposed to have a, a descendant on the throne for all ways. And, and we have these great images that continue, verse 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. I'm gonna give you crops that are so good that you won't be able to harvest one crop until the guy plowing to plant the seed is running into the guy picking the fruit. You follow me? You're going to have wine. You're going to have all sorts of fruitfulness. I will restore, verse 14, the captivity of my people Israel. They're going to rebuild the city they live in. There'll be vineyards. They'll drink wine. There'll be new gardens. They'll eat fruit. I will plant them on on their land. And they will not again be rooted out from the land which I began to them, says the Lord your God. This is a curious mix, this chapter 9 of Amos. The wrath of God parallel with the grace and the mercy of God. And looking to someone from the house of David to build up the throne of David. That should be a hint to us what Amos is prophetically saying to us, that the one who's a descendant of David who takes the throne and ultimately fulfills the promise and pledge to David is none other than the descendant of David, Jesus our Christ, our Messiah. And this is a, a foreshadowing of the picture of Calvary, for it is there on Calvary, on the cross, that we have both the wrath of God and the mercy of God, side by side, just like they are in Amos. For I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner. And we ought to be on the smite part of that commandment of of Amos chapter 9. But God loves us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there on the cross, you have a picture of God's wrath. It's not that God is mean. It is that God is holy and righteous. And by His very nature, God cannot be in the presence of sin. And my sin and your sin is placed upon the back of the Christ. And while He's on the cross, He receives the wrath of God. God, in the form of His Son, receives His own wrath. Against my sin and your sin. Yes, Amos is foreshadowing Calvary. For there you have both the wrath of God, the sure judgment, Amos 9 1 through 8, and then the sure hope, Amos 8b through 15. The mercy of God, the grace of God, the wrath of God, and a descendant of David, all wrapped up in Calvary. That's the story of our God. He is holy and He is righteous. And as Paul tells us in Romans, the cross is a way that He can be both just and the justifier to bring us into His kingdom. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We are bound for God's wrath except for the fact that Jesus already took that wrath for us. He died in my place and in your place, that we could be on the mercy side of Amos chapter 9. When I read a passage like Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 8a, and I'm reminded of the powerful wrath of God, who smites and destroys and says, when I reveal my wrath, no one shall escape I'm reminded of what Jesus did for us on Calvary. He received that wrath. He received that judgment that we could be the bearers of grace, that we could be the people who are so fruitful in our lives that even before we can harvest one crop, we are planting the next in the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here this morning and this is your day. I'm not making lie to the wrath of God. I believe that Amos is preaching the truth, and I believe that Jonathan Edwards was preaching the truth back in the 1700s. I'm not making lie to the wrath of God, but I am making big the grace of God. It's through the cross, the wrath of God satisfied to all who will say, yes, I die with him, that likewise... I might rise with him maybe you're here today watching by way of television and this is God's word for you today to avoid the wrath of God to avoid eternal punishment by saying yes to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to let him die for you and let him rise for you that you die with him and you rise with him into a glorious eternity let us pray Oh God, perhaps there's someone here today, this was the word of God for her. This was the word of God for him. Maybe he would come or she would come today and say I want his death to be my death. I want his resurrection to be my resurrection. I want to know that I am forgiven. For I know that I'm a sinner. I'm the sinful one of Amos chapter 9 and I need the grace of God through the real dynasty of David in Christ Jesus. Maybe there are others this morning, O God, who would come to be a part of this great church where the whole Word of God is preached, even a book like Amos. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.